The scripture reading today is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. As we work together with him, we urge you also not to accept the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time, I have listened to you, and on a day of salvation, I have helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. See, now is the day of salvation. We are putting no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we have commended ourselves in every way through great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, holiness of spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, in honor and dishonor, in ill repute and good repute. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet are well known, as dying and see we are alive, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken frankly to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open to you. There is no restriction in our affections, but only in yours. In return, I speak as to children. Open wide your hearts also. This is the story of faith and faithful struggle. Thanks be to God. As we enter into the time of our service where we hear God's word, let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength and our salvation. And may we, like Samuel, cry out and say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Amen. Marianne Wolfe, our liturgist, has just read Paul's letter, the second of his letters to the church at Corinth. Paul was the founding pastor of that church in a cosmopolitan city on the Isthmus of Corinth, a narrow strip of land connecting the mainland of Greece, the northern part, with the Peloponnese, or southern Greece. Paul spent approximately 18 months in Corinth on his second missionary journey that we read about in Acts 18 verses 1 through 11. After leaving Corinth, Paul traveled extensively, settling in Ephesus for an extended period of time. During that period, he wrote at least four letters to the Christians at Corinth. 
Jane Lancaster Patterson writes, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 through 13, with its emotion and autobiographical references, is about Paul's individual experiences. And yet, the plural we also indicates that Paul was probably never alone in his ministry. The opening to 2 Corinthians mentions Timothy as the co-author, and there must be a very profound relationship in this we who have experienced such a great endurance described in chapter 6, verses 4 through 10. The close relationship between Paul and his co-workers is evidence of the characteristic way in which people understood themselves in the first century. That is, as primarily persons in community, not as autonomous individuals. Persons in community. I often wonder how we differ today in our lookout for number one society. Are we more selfish? Do we still yearn for community? I think we do. Even though we don't always see people flocking to churches for that community, we definitely see people flocking to soccer fields where the parents enjoy the time together as much as the kids who are playing. Each Thursday when I see our scouts meet here at Wesley, I'm gladdened that as many adults as kids are there having their own social time to chat. The way that we are called to be co-creators with God is in building community, beloved community. Here at Wesley, we have a lovely blended worship service that includes beautiful organ music and some high church liturgy, as well as our energetic praise band and down-to-earth relevant preaching. But I hope we're always looking at how to do more how to reach further. The idea of evangelizing doesn't come naturally to most of us, but it is as essential a part of our mission as growing with God so that we can go to serve. It is critical that we don't only think of ourselves as serving them, the others who need our help. We must always understand the ways in which we are also served by others, living in an interconnected society of give and take. And a big part of that is the missing third piece of that statement, growing with God to go to serve, and that is sharing the love. The church is an inviting community, a safe place where we are all welcome. But what are we welcoming people to? Are we sharing the good news that God loves them and we do too? What do they need? I believe that most of all, the people need to belong. They need to have a place where they can safely be themselves and grow spiritually. What I mean by that is that we all need to continue to grow in understanding of who we are what our purpose is and where our place is in the world relative to divine love that created us, sustains us, and enables us to be in caring, grace-filled relationship with each other. Anna Yelsey Velasco Sanchez says, 
Paul's claim, while it may have crept somewhat into the Christian vernacular, deserves a moment's examination. I am God's co-worker, not God is my manager, but a claim suggesting co-laboring and the equal sharing of responsibility. If God is divine, creator of all, sustainer of all, to say you're co-laboring with God is quite a claim. But this says so much. Not only did God decide to become fully human in the person of Jesus, that was not a single isolated event in the course of history. One of the Creator's first powerful actions in Hebrew scripture is the Exodus story, where the power of God is used to liberate the people from slavery and bondage. God worked with Moses, Miriam, David, Deborah, Elijah, and Ezra to care for their people, to fight for justice, and to speak truth to power. God could have done all those things on their own. But for some reason, God invited humans into the process. In his book, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says, power, properly understood, is the ability to achieve purpose. It is the strength required to bring about social, political, or economic changes. In this sense, power is not only desirable, but necessary in order to implement the demands of love and justice. Now there is some insight into our purpose to work for justice, to bring about social changes to so many problems like poverty, discrimination, and sheer hatred. We are not simply onlookers in this process. When we hear of more and more mass shootings, we are called to do something about it. Maybe we don't feel we can do much, far away and seemingly powerless, but I believe God charges us each and every day to transform society with our kindness and our forgiveness that are powerful to change the hearts of people. We often think of patience as a passive thing, the ability to sit around and wait for something to happen. That is not the idea of the word Paul used in this passage that we hear today. It is an active endurance instead of a passive waiting. Theologian William Barclay says the ancient Greek word hupomene does not describe the frame of mind which can sit down with folded hands and a bowed head and let a torrent of trouble sweep over it in passive resignation. Rather, it describes the ability to hear things in such a triumphant way that it transfigures them. Not passive waiting, but active endurance. While Paul's claim to be co-working with God could be seen as inflating his role, it instead speaks to how God is willing to come to us and work with us and through us to bring about justice. As co-laborers, we are both compelled and empowered to act, as God does, with a preferential treatment for those on the margins of society. Paul's account of extraordinary courage and willingness to suffer points to the reality that living the gospel is not solitary work. 
It takes solidarity to stand up against a culture that does not respect the values of God's justice and to endure its punishment. Paul does not shy away from describing the vivid detail, the suffering of apostles as a sharp critique of the wider culture that sees the gospel as so threatening that it must be contained by beating, imprisoning, and starving those who proclaim it. He uses these strong words like endurance, afflictions, hardships, calamities, riots, labors, and sleepless nights. Now, without video footage to show the Corinthians what he means, Paul must use such language so vividly that they can see and smell and feel what he and his companions have undergone as God's servants. The whole astonishing performance is intended to help the Corinthians read reality more accurately. Within a wider culture whose values are upside down, Paul is trying to help this community of Christ believers to see how rejoicing might be hidden within the sorrow that comes from truly engaging in justice, to see the riches hidden in intentional poverty, to have the confidence to see how fullness of life may be hidden within the willingness to risk one's life for the sake of the gospel. Far from telling the Corinthians that they're supposed to bring in God's kingdom through their own efforts, Paul draws them to attend to where the power of God is already on the move in precisely the places they perceive as shameful or threatening. This passage contains much that would be helpful in our own context as we seek a faithful way to engage the day's news. Where might we train our hearts and minds to discern the power of God moving in the very places that scare us the most? Where are the values of our culture upside down and how can we develop communities that see things aright? Paul follows his call to the Corinthians to accept free gift of grace with an interesting phrase. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path, he says. There isn't one simple explanation of this question, this idea, but it starts with making sure that those who are oppressed are centered. No stumbling blocks means not making it harder than it has to be for people to be welcome to be affirmed, to bring their whole selves to be received. It is not failing to address their immediate physical needs because of a preoccupation with their soul. It is following the lead of the most marginalized in setting expectations for how we all will be together. Saint Oscar Romero said, when the church hears the cry of the oppressed, it cannot but denounce the social structures that give rise to and perpetuate the misery from which that cry arises. Elizabeth Johnson writes, In the ancient world, responsibility for initiating the mending of a ruptured relationship was understood to rest with the injuring party. In political contexts, this work was normally entrusted to an ambassador. Paul sees that in Christ, God completely overturns conventional expectations. God, the injured party, takes the initiative to heal the ruptured relationship 
and reconcile the world to himself. Paul understands his own calling to be that of an ambassador for Christ, through whom God entreats the injured, injuring party to be reconciled to God. It is evident throughout 2 Corinthians that Paul was deeply hurt by accusations and insults coming from people in a congregation he had labored long and hard to establish and nurture. More than that, he agonized over their spiritual well-being. We can only imagine that Paul might have been tempted to wash his hands of those troublesome Corinthians, yet he did not. Corinthians provides us with a poignant witness of an apostle for whom walking away was not an option. Moved by the reconciling love of God in Christ, by Christ's willingness to humble himself and become vulnerable to suffer and die, Paul firmly believed that he was called to be an agent of God's reconciling work. Though wronged by the Corinthians, at least in Paul's view, the only viewpoint that was preserved, he was willing to humble himself and make himself vulnerable, pleading with the Corinthians to be reconciled to God and to himself. Once again, I am struck by how sorely Paul's words are needed in the contemporary church. Though we may talk a good game about forgiveness and reconciliation, we often balk at taking the risks inherent in truly living a ministry of reconciliation, even within the church. Often both parties in a conflict feel they have been wronged by the other, and neither is willing to risk the vulnerability and potential humiliation of seeking a reconciliation. We would much rather nurse our wounds and grudges than to do the hard and humbling work of mending broken relationships. We would do well to learn from Paul about speaking frankly and with an open heart. For Paul, it begins with what God has done for us in Christ. Even though we are clearly the injuring party, God takes the risk of vulnerability and humiliation and suffering in order to reconcile us to God's self. As an ambassador for Christ entrusted with this message of reconciliation, Paul is compelled to take the same risk with those who have wronged him. He urges them and us to join him in the ministry of reconciliation, which all are called to in Christ, beginning with our own sisters and brothers in the church. Engaging in this ministry within the church is necessary if we hope to bear compelling witness to God's reconciling love for the world. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. Amen.